This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the AM Campaign and the Crux and the Call. Uh, Justin, how, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right. It was a pretty good uh, weekend in some respects, and and not such a good weekend and uh, uh, when it comes to football. But uh, I'm I'm recovering. Oh, I, I had a very different interpretation of this weekend when it came to football. <laughs> I I'll, bet you I'll did. Know. Uh, at least when it comes to the fourth quarter uh my buffalo bills fought back uh but i i I am sorry things didn't fall the way you you wanted the other interesting game was uh so you know i'm from buffalo and uh first of all the ub bulls the university of buffalo bulls were on fox just national television which i don't think i've ever seen before Mm -hmm. and then they went into the first half up 10-7 10-7 on Penn State, and then they fell apart in the second half. But it was still a still a good thing to see see the UB Bulls on on, on TV. What what was the most heartbreaking game for you uh, this this weekend? Well, Vandy didn't show up uh, in, yeah. in their game against Purdue, which was upsetting. The Bears' offense didn't show up, and yeah. uh, the Falcons' offense didn't show up. So, yeah, yeah. that pretty, that pretty yeah, much sums right. it up. Hey, at least uh, they're not uh, the Miami Dolphins who lost 59-10 to Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. And reports this morning are that uh, Dolphins players are already asking to be traded away. Wow. <laughs> just, I, I just did see that. Away. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, that's a that's a bad loss. But to be asking to be traded after the first game seems to be a bit much. But Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, but but th- these days, yeah, the, the, the uh, I, I think after... Antonio Brown uh, and maybe on Bell got to basically pick their teams. It's uh, it's uh, players feel like they can they can demand be be traded. So we'll see if the Dolphins completely hollow out over over the next week. Uh, the last sports related thing is uh, so I think I mentioned on the podcast last week that uh, took my uh, took Sirsha to go see the Washington Nationals and we loved it. And I, I just thought let's do it again this weekend and looked up on the app and there was a game against the Braves on, on Saturday. And so I bought the ticket Saturday morning and uh, Melissa was out of town. So I got Sisha all dressed up in her Nats little shirt and, uh, you know, packed the car, made sure we had sunscreen, inspect, insect repellent, uh, you know, everything that we needed, drive the 45 minutes down into the city. uh, And the parking lot is, is empty. I'm like, is no one attending this game? And I, I look up and 
look at the app and the game was next week. So, ah, <laughs> uh, like I just completely, yeah, I, I saw the Nats were playing the Braves, but they were playing in your city. They were playing in Atlanta this past weekend. And now next weekend we have tickets to the game. So uh, thankfully we didn't buy tickets for the game in Atlanta. I just didn't realize that I bought tickets for September 14th, mm. not the 7th. So it was, it was a big, Big mistake. We ended up having to go to the zoo and and walk around a little bit. Still had a good day, but I I definitely had egg on my face. I had my poor poor girl walking around in Nats <laughs> gear, or not walking. She can't walk, but uh, getting pushed around in Nats gear, and and there was no Nats game. So oh man, what well, zoo? I'm sure she enjoyed the zoo. That's that's a pretty good thing. She did. She did. Hey, uh, we have some interesting topics to discuss uh, this week, and I, I you know the the first thing I wanted to ask about was really your your weekend uh you were a part of a criminal justice event um that featured some of the top political leaders in georgia some of the top activists and you know wanted to hear about that and also thought it would be a good opportunity to just talk about criminal justice reform a bit before we get into that we decided to talk about this issue probably yesterday a sunday morning sunday night President Trump decided uh, to give us a, a news hook to talk about it when he tweeted uh, several tweets at, you know, 11, 11 p.m. as presidents uh, uh, now or want to do. And I'll read some of these tweets. I don't want to get into all of them because it gets pretty crass because that's, again, what presidents are want to do these days. But he tweeted, when all of the people pushing so hard for criminal justice reform were unable to come even close to getting it done, they came to me as a group and asked for my help. I got it done with a group of senators and others who would never have gone for it. Obama couldn't come close. A man named Van Jones and many others were profusely grateful at that time. Mm-hmm. I signed it into law. No one else did. Your president. Uh, No one else did. And Republicans deserve much credit. But now that it is passed, people that had virtually nothing to do with it are taking the praise. And then I'll I'll stop there. But that's the basic gist of it. He goes on to say that those who so desperately sought my help when everyone else Hmm. had failed on criminal justice reform, all they talk about now is impeaching President Trump. Uh, And so... Uh, let, let's let's throw in sort of the partisan dynamics into criminal justice reform into this into this too. But just, just I'll, I'll turn to you. Tell us a little bit about the event and, and what what you learned about sort of the the fight for criminal justice reform uh, at, at the state level. Yeah, it was a good conversation to be on that criminal. It was a criminal justice uh, summit. And I got to be on a panel here in Atlanta, as you said, with a couple of district attorneys, some judges, some activists. My good friend, L. Chris Stewart, who is a civil rights attorney who many of you probably have seen on television. Uh, He handled cases like Walter Scott, Alton uh, Sterling and so on. And it, it was a timely, you know, I think it was a timely uh, conversation. Uh, as, as many of you know, criminal justice has been a hot topic, as it should be. And there's been some promising reforms really around the country. Um, and when we enter into this conversation, it, it's important to have the right framework. One thing I think we have to keep in mind when we enter the criminal justice conversation is that criminal justice is not an exact science. Uh, there is a reason why our system leans towards innocence, right? It, it, our system says it is better to have somebody that, that is guilty on the streets than to have somebody that's innocent in jail. 
Uh, and so that's why we place the burden on the state to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, this is, you know, partially because the system will never be error free. And I think when it comes to criminal justice, we must always kind of be vigilant uh, and ready to improve the system without without chasing every fad that comes along. But understand it's a process that's really never ending because you never get it completely right. And when you're dealing with liberty, when you're dealing with all the things that come into play, when you're talking about crystal criminal justice, you have to keep an eye on it again. You have to stay vigilant. Uh, and so I've, I've been glad to see, uh, partially because of uh, um, Black Lives Matter and movements like that, I've been glad to see the glow- growing effort to address police brutality and to address mass incarceration. Uh, it is a matter of human dignity and and Christians should care uh, quite a bit about it because it's a matter of human dignity. And we know that even in the Bible, we see over and over again uh, people being unjustly imprisoned. And it's not something that we should ever accept. Uh, that said, I think when we talk about it, about crime, we have to make sure that we don't talk about crime uh, like there are no victims. Right. Um, We can't we can't talk about police like there are no homicidal criminals. Uh, It can be a very nuanced and complicated conversation. And we don't want our narratives to get in the way of reality and good policy. And sometimes that can happen. Even some of the uh, documentaries and things that we like to watch are sometimes more about narrative than actually the, 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 the reality and the data and all that stuff. So we have to be very careful uh, as we as we go into that. And just make sure you you refer to different sources. So just for some background and why this was important in Georgia is a year or so ago, Georgia had its own bipartisan. And I love to be able to say bipartisan uh, criminal justice reform. And it, it's been it's been impactful so far, Michael. Uh, prison admissions uh, have dropped 19 percent. Uh, the incarceration of, of black inmates has fallen 30 uh, percent. I mean, 30 percent. That's a lot of families uh, that yeah, we can talk yeah. about. Uh, and that's the lowest in decades. In uh, 2009, African-Americans accounted for 61 percent of the new inmates. And now it's down to 53 percent. Right. So this this wasn't just something that somebody passed just to say it just to, to look good. Right. This was substantive policy. And it's had an impact on the state and an impact on racial disparities. Um, Georgia, Georgia also significantly expanded programs to treat non nonviolent offend, offenders, excuse me, who suffer for, from substance abuse and mental illness. Right. So there, there was a comprehensive it didn't deal with everything, but there was a it was a comprehensive look. Now, Michael, you just mentioned our president and the words he had to say about uh, criminal justice reform uh, federally. And I won't take it from him. he did. You know, they I think he was mostly referring to the First Step Act. I won't take it away from him that he passed that. I think some of his history might have been a little bit misleading, uh, to say the least. But but the First Step Act was a good first step. It was a, it was more of a moderate change than what you saw happen in Georgia. But it was important. It, it looked it focused on reducing recidivism, which means people going in and out of jail, committing crime, going to jail and then doing it over again. Uh, it looked at sentencing laws and penalties that were just too harsh. You know, the street three strikes rule. Again, when we're talking about uh, sentencing reform, those are all important steps that it, that it took. Now, my not my commentary on this panel. I really tried to focus on three things. You know, I, usually when I go on panels, I try not to cover too much. I try to focus in just on a few things and, and hit those as hard as I can. And yeah. first thing that I focused on was making sure we focus on uh, not just the fiscal costs, but the social costs of mass incarceration. Right. Fathers being out of the home, 
uh, mental issues from being physically abused in prison. I talked about the fact that I have a cousin that that went to jail, took a few beatings and has never been the same. That doesn't just affect him. It affects his children. It, it affects his families, uh, his family. Uh, you got to talk about STDs and health issues that go along with with our jails and the conditions in our jails, the costs of families. How much does do these visits cost? How much do the phone calls uh, cost? Uh, so that was the first thing. Next, I talk about I talked about just doing our best to take money out of the equation as much as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. There is no reason, or at least I've never heard any good reason that someone who is poor should s- sit in jail, even for a lesser crime than someone who has money. What does having money have to do with the risk that you are of running or not coming back or whatever? And so I really think that as much as possible, we have to take money out of the equation when it comes uh, to our criminal justice system. And then lastly, I talked about prosecutorial um, discretion, meaning, you know, how many what choices do prosecutors have? If I'm a prosecutor, can I tell you, hey, uh, I'm going to charge you with this crime that you're going to get 50 years or you can take this deal, which most are most and in most instances, uh, these these cases are ended with with plea deals or you can take this deal for 15 years. Well, even if I didn't do it, the, the fact that I could face 50 years is going to make me much more likely to take the 15. And that's just not how it should work. So great conversation. We had some activists there, too, had, who had, you know, some some different came from different perspectives that were very helpful. If you want to learn more just about criminal justice in general, I would really suggest John Pfaff's book, Locked In. Uh, Faf mm-hmm. is a yeah, he's yeah. a uh, professor at Fordham University. And the reason that I, I usually suggest him is that I think he does a good job cutting through the narratives and really focusing in on the data, uh, focusing in on the data, not in a way that erases the human side of the of the conversation, but so that we can really get to the issue and not be kind of carried away by uh, some of these narratives that just aren't always accurate. So uh, check out John Faf locked in if you want to get to know more about uh, criminal justice reform. That's that's really good. I, I mean, the the main point I wanted to make here, uh, well, two things. One, uh, Justin, not only did we not uh, take take it away from President Trump that he signed the First Step Act by multiple episodes, uh, you and I have both praised him for it. And so, you know, I, I think this, I, and, and you know, Van Jones on air on CNN multiple times has praised President Trump for passing the First Step Act. Uh, just the the transactional nature with which this president operates. Uh, you'll notice nowhere in his tweets did he say this was the right thing to do, and I was happy to do it. <laughs> right. I'm so I'm so glad that uh, that that this group of folks came to me and and raised something positive that I could do for communities around around this country. Uh, he's saying, "Where is my where is my credit and undying loyalty?" from from people who wanted me to do this, which is just a really poor way of thinking about public service. So I wanted to point that out. The second thing I wanted to point out, and this is just really important, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be especially important over the next uh, year, I think, criminal justice reform is one of those issues. Really, the, you can get the most done at the state and local level. Uh, whether you're talking about bad things that the federal government has done or good things that the federal government has done regarding crime and criminal justice reform. Yes, it matters, certainly. But you're talking about 
a, a pretty small percentage of the overall prison population when you're talking about uh, federal criminal justice reform. Most of the, uh, the criminal justice system operates primarily at the local and at the state level. And so if this is an issue that matters to you, uh, as Justin mentioned, uh, you want to be, do uh, you know who's, uh, if you have a, a a, a, a DA representing uh, uh, your city. Do you know who that is? Do you know what what their approach to these issues are? Are you are you voting uh, on uh, for judges when when cases with judges uh, or when when uh, elections for uh, judges happen in your state uh, or locality? Uh, being able to uh, dive in at the state and local level is. Again, the way that you can affect most of the criminal justice system. And then two, uh, you can actually have greater impact at the local and state level uh, uh, just because of your power as a citizen at that level. Uh, You can contact your uh, city council member, your state legislator, and probably get access to them and be heard a lot more easily than your uh, United States senator or certainly the, the president in the White House. And so that's a set for, for folks who care about this issue. If you read uh, a FAF's book and, and get fired up about it, or if, it, if these issues have affected you and your family personally, uh, engaging on the local and state level could be a really powerful way of of moving forward. And so uh, those were, you know, just in a, a couple of the points that I, I thought were uh, uh, might be might be helpful uh, to make. The the last um, is there was a New York Times article on September third. The headline is "The Next Arena for Criminal Justice Reform." a roof over their heads. And this article is basically about the issue of uh, prisoner reentry. And that's something where the federal government can have uh, a, a greater role uh, with the issue of housing, obviously, when you talk about federally assisted housing. But there are a range of issues uh, when we talk about employment, uh, when we talk about a whole range of uh, ways that we could help uh, f- former uh, prisoners uh, uh, who are trying to reintegrate into society uh, have an easier time of doing that. And then I'd, I'd also point out the church has a big role to play here. So often when prisoners reenter society, uh, they, they're unable to establish a life that would that would facilitate them staying out of trouble, would facilitate them uh, growing and supporting their family. Uh, because of stigma, not just because of law, but because of stigma, the church can be a wonderful place that helps uh, vouch for uh, people, that helps connect people with opportunities. Uh, and I, I, I've seen that in my time uh, in government. I know you've seen that in my time in government and in, in the church. And uh, the, the issue of prisoner reentry, obviously a lot to do on the local and state level there. But federal policy can can do a little bit more on reentry issues. We've seen Senator uh, Warren, Senator Harris, uh, several uh, of the presidential candidates put forward uh, housing policies, put forward other pr- prisoner reentry related policies um, to focus on recidivism. And so, just I'm so glad that you had the opportunity to participate. Uh, in, in that event, uh, I know there's been a lot of progress in Georgia, and it is 
it is something of a bright spot. When folks are always complaining about politics, what 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 are they getting done? This this is an area where folks can point to that. Hey, when good people get together and put their mind to something, actual progress can be made. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I, I just want to uh, give a shout out to to Governor uh, Nathan Deal, who was a Republican governor. He's out of office now, who who really spearheaded all of this and put together a bipartisan panel to get it done uh, and, and really push to get it done. I, you know, I disagreed with him on the, you know, not expanding Medicare, but that didn't mean right. that when it came to criminal justice, I can't say, hey, you did the right thing. And it really impacted a lot of families in Georgia, in the city of Atlanta and beyond. And so we really, uh, really appreciate that. All right, folks, we're going to take a a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, the burgeoning uh, debate that kind of reached ahead this past week between David French and Sarabamari. When we get back, we'll talk about that and more. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, last week at Catholic University, uh, there was a long-awaited debate between Sarab Amari and David French. In May of 2019, Amari wrote an article for First Things with the headline, Against David Frenchism, which was kind of a broadside that was a bit unanticipated against, uh, obviously in a very personal way, <laughs> David French, but also uh, David French is a stand-in for a, uh, a sort of more libertarian defense of uh, liberal democratic institutions and norms that Amari believes are insufficient for the moral challenge that we, uh, that we face uh, today in America. Uh, they uh, they met to debate last week. It was a packed house at Catholic University. And John Ward has a story. His sort of takeaway from the event was uh, the headline to the story is religious conservatives voice fears that a Democratic president will lead them to martyrdom. Uh, this was said explicitly at some at some points, but it was a through line throughout sort of the the whole conversation and really uh, much of religious conservatism uh, now over the last you know several decades in my view we we could get into the intricacies of the debate between Amari and French and all the various levels to it. I mean, it speaks to the growing sort of discontent with liberal democracy. It speaks to uh, the fraction in the Republican Party between, uh, well, the uh, friction caused in the Republican Party by President Trump, and then also the longstanding tension in the Republican Party between libertarianism and a more robust view for the role of government in enforcing morality and sort of putting its thumb uh, on the scales a bit more. My biggest sort of takeaway with this event was just a a conviction that fear and 
that the stakes of our politics can lead us to make some moral compromises that really undermine our witness. And so I'll give you one example of that, and then interested in your thoughts. In his uh, May First Things article, and again in the debate, Amari uh, said that civility uh, is only a second order issue. If civility can advance your own ends, then civility is fine. But in rejecting policies and people that you think are bad, then civility is actually a vice. That actually uh, civility is kind of a sign of a weakness of conviction. Uh, We've talked about this in a lot of other circumstances. I I think French had a, a, a pretty good, solid retort when he pointed simply to the fact that when scripture says, love your enemy, like what, what is it talking about? If, it, if it's not talking about treating those that you disagree with politically, mind you, with dignity and respect, th- then what kind of other interpretation can you have? What other kind of application could that have? Uh, so just watching this debate, Justin, it was just a, another sort of warning to me, you know, there's a scripture that says that, you know, Christians ought not mourn as those who have no hope. It made me think, you know, Christians should not engage in politics as those who have no hope. You know, if if your view of politics is that, you know, it's this moment that is the, the defining moment that either you will win this political fight or martyrdom lays on the other side, uh, that is a dangerous way to engage in politics, especially if that's the way that you've been engaging in politics for the last 20 years. You know, Amari is a pretty uh, young guy. I believe he's 34. But a lot of the folks who are on uh, his side of the debate are the same folks who were raising fire alarms 20 years ago. And so to maintain that pitched concern that 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 fear for so long is going to lead to some deterioration uh, significant deterioration in values and in the way that you engage but um, that those were my takeaways I don't think Amari was wrong on uh, on everything he said in in the debate I actually think he pressed uh, David French on some important issues but I did take real umbrage and and really thought it was worth pointing out his sort of continued assertion that the challenges of our politics are so great now that Christians can't afford to act Christianly in politics, um, which is not something that he pushed back on too too much. So I feel feel comfortable framing framing his, his views in that way. Yeah, he said that fairly clearly. Uh, he, 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 you know, he didn't really. Um, and I appreciate that he, you know, didn't say it in an article. And then when he got in front of everybody, he changed his story. So yeah, he, uh, Amari was pretty clear on that. I, I'll start by saying, and you know, uh, we've had Ward on the show. He's a good guy. He's a strong writer, and I know he doesn't necessarily control the headline, but I didn't like that uh, Yahoo News headline. Um, yes, martyrdom was mentioned in the conversation, but with context. I right. think the headline yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. trivialized the entire conversation. And it, I don't think it was a trivial conversation. Um, That's right. So I, I didn't get to watch it live, but I did catch it afterwards. And it got pretty heated. Um, uh, you could you could tell there, there were some feelings involved. There was a history there. 
And it, and it was like the whole time, you know, Mari was sweating. Uh, uh, French was kind of shaking. <laughs> you saw his foot shaking the whole time. So you could tell at any moment it was getting very tense. And uh, uh, Ross Douthat, I, I, he did what he could, but I don't, I don't know that there was any. It got a little bit out of hand, and I don't know how much you could have stopped that from happening. I do, I do think to some extent Amari took – he could have come at – uh, French differently with that initial article. And so I do, to some extent, understand why French was kind of on the defensive and, and ready to go. Um, you know, I, I've been keeping an eye just in general on this debate between conservatives. And to some extent, although David French was a little more libertarian than I thought he would be on the issue, uh, so I, I'm sh- certainly not libertarian, in, uh, libertarian on it, but um, I come down a little bit more on David French's side than I do on Amari's side when it comes to the tone and approach that we should have on these social issues, if you want to call it a culture war. Um, so I, 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 I do want to start off by saying that, you know, Amari's whole thing about civility being, you know, kind of like a second rate thing or something that, that doesn't hold the day, I think is completely wrong. I think the Bible prevents us, and I'm agreeing with you here, Michael, that the Bible prevents us from apo- approaching culture in the way that our opponents uh, approach it, right? So he's basically saying, look, progressives understand the culture war means discrediting their opponents and weakening and destroying their institutions. He's not completely lying about that, right? That's not completely wrong. That doesn't mean that we can approach it that way, though, right? Um, When Christian sociopolitical engagement becomes paranoid and focused primarily on protecting ourselves, our public witness will be unchristlike. We make terrible mistakes when we engage out of fear, as you were saying. We align with the wrong people. We support and defend the wrong leaders. Let me say that again. We support and defend the wrong leaders. And the desperation that you see that comes from this uh, posture clouds and I think compromises our integrity, right? Um, to all, all, all automatically jump to martyrdom. Now, there is I, I truly believe there's a polite what they call polite persecution going on. But to automatically jump to martyrdom does seem to be a, a bit much. Right. But if we are taken out, if, if that if it did come to that, if we were taken out for doing things with compassion and being civil, then that's just the fate that we would have to face. Um, the Bible doesn't really give us much of another option. Now, that doesn't that isn't to say that we can't fight back. But even within fighting back, we do have to realize there are some limits there. And if it did come to martyrdom, that could just have to be the reality. Right. So I don't think it's like, oh, if it did jump all the way to martyrdom, then we have all these other options available. I don't know that we do have all these other options available if that's the case. Right. I don't know if that justifies incivility or or any of those things. Um, and, and, and to me, Michael, the argument came down to I think that the, the main question that they mentioned was how should Christians respond to those who disagree with their views and who try to bully and intimidate and coerce them into disavowing their beliefs on cultural issues? My response to that would be the way that we should respond is with sound reasoning, with compassion, with boldness. And that's really Christian courage. And I've said over and over again, there is no substitute for Christian courage. Sometimes you're just going to have to be courageous. And so I don't believe in shrinking from the conflict. And I do think that some Christians in our attempt to be um, winsome uh, and we should be winsome. But I think it's sometimes in our attempt to be winsome. Really, we're just shrinking from the conversation. 
really we're just hiding our beliefs. Uh, so we have to that's a thin line there. and We have to make sure we get it right in the sociopolitical space. Christians must be kind. Christians must be compassionate. But don't put too much value in being liked because that is different in the political space. And this is this is the way the and campaign goes about it. And, and the way I, I feel is, is the right way to go about it. It's much more effective to be respected than liked, because sometimes what it takes to be liked is assimilation, is all type of compromises of your convictions. And you can't always control whether you are liked or not. But you can control whether you're bold, whether you're compassionate and if you're being thoughtful about the conversation. Um, So I think it's important that we call out bad logic, that we call out bullying, that we call out this coercion, that we are seeing more and more of it because it is not a game. And our families, our churches and our children can suffer from this uh, so-called polite persecution. Too many Christians, I do again, too many Christians are taking this lightly. And I think that's extremely naive. Uh, And so I wouldn't go as far as Amari, but I would say don't take it lightly because there are some serious things coming from the left that aren't acceptable. When you have, you know, when you have multiple uh, presidential candidates who have been on the Judiciary Committee and have told people basically that you shouldn't be a judge because you have Christian convictions, that's a problem. And I do think to some extent, French was dismissive of that. Um, and so while, while I agreed with French more than Amari in general in this conversation, I do think he was a little bit dismissive. He kept the conversation in the courts and that's his experience. I mean, he's an attorney, but I did agree with Amari that this was bigger than the courts. Right. This was also a cultural conversation. And French, to some extent, came off as someone very much in the protected class, v- someone very much who could send his kids, you know, either homeschool his kids or send his kids to to a private school, whereas Christians who can't do that do have to be worried about Illinois and Colorado and California setting up these new curriculum that they can't really control and they don't have the time to really combat. So I don't think I I do think French was way too dismissive of that. And those are some points that Amari made, but still Amari to go into the fear and to go into what we have to, we have to go on the offensive and we have to do this and we have to react just like they are. And Trump is necessary in order to fight them. I think he was completely wrong on that. I think they were both kind of wrong for losing their cool. Uh, Amari, if I don't know if you saw, I would recommend you guys watch it, but uh, Amari basically questioned uh, French's uh, service, military service. And French had earlier called something that he said stupid. It just kind of got a little out of hand, I think, on both sides. I think there was some snarkiness on both sides. But the larger conversation is one that we need to have and we need to understand. And I agree with French when he said it is simply not biblical to throw out love your neighbor just because you're under a threat. Yeah, I, I, I think those comments are really good. I do think Amari has something on David when he points out that there's a thrust to sort of the liberal democratic order that isn't neutral, that isn't something that just sets a, a level playing field. And Amari's insistence that all government actions have a value behind them is an important one to take into consideration that you know, often, you know, libertarians miss or, you know, in my view, libertarians want to so dramatically reduce the what government does in a way that I think is impractical and impractical, both on a on a practical basis and impractical in the sense that 
uh, it is such a divergence from where we are now that sort of the political map there is as unfeasible as what French was pressing Amari on, which is what tools does Amari want to use in order to effectuate his uh, his more sort of proactively Catholic vision for society. In other words, if if conservative Christians are so embattled and so on the losing end, just how does Amari believe that they're going to establish a new sort of socially conservative order politically? It seems unlikely that both stories can be uh, mm-hmm. can be uh, can be true that they can both be under dramatic attack and under the uh, under the current order and also like be capable of a political takeover a sweeping political overhaul and that's something that you know Am- Amari is going to have to answer I believe that there's French and Amari will be getting back together I think even this week at University of Notre Dame so it's a conversation that will continue I will say you know, I think it's valuable. I mean, they've both confronted each other. I think it's very valuable to have them in the same room. I'm interested to see this conversation expand, though, to have different voices, to have folks from different perspectives. I think it's, again, very helpful to have like an intra-conservative debate at Catholic University. There's great value to that, to, to having two people who are actually relatively close on the whole politically spectrum, uh, on the whole political spectrum debating these things. Uh, but this is a conversation that we wanted to discuss on this show because we think more people need to be paying attention to it and more people need to need to be adding their voices and, and uh, challenging, I think, both David and Amari in, in a way that could be helpful to the to the whole conversation. Yeah, no, that's good. And at the end of the day, I was it left me thinking, especially on the Amari end, Where's your faith? Mm. Where does faith play into this? Where do we say, you know what? Some of this is actually out of our hands because you get the feeling that the folks on Amari's side want to control all of it. Right. Mm-hmm. If it's not in our control, we don't feel, you know, we don't feel OK about it. Well, sometimes you can't control it. You have to respond how God has told you to respond and yeah. have faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't necessarily get to throw out the rules because, you know, because the things aren't looking good for you. And so I, I would end by saying, you know, there is never a good reason to defend and support someone that's doing the things Trump does. And Trump is not a good reason to defend and support doing the things Trump does. And that, so that kind of goes for both sides. Right. Um, And just keep that in mind. We have, we have a certain way that God has, that God has told us uh, to react to our opponents, to our enemies, to our neighbor. And those stick. And we got to we got to stick with them even in the tough times, because it's the tough times when they really matter anyway. Yeah. Hey, well, uh, it was great conversation, as always, this week. Uh, Really grateful for those uh, listening in. Uh, We're past uh, Labor Day. We're into the fall. Starting to see fall decorations up. It's a a good time of year. uh, And we're, we're glad to to be with you and be able to uh, share our thoughts every week and, and continue the conversation. J- Justin, do you have any, any closing thoughts, anything you want to touch on uh, before, before we close it out? Yeah, I'll just say I, I was very disappointed and, and this is a conversation we've had a lot, but I was very disappointed in how several, at least two, especially uh, Democrat presidential candidates handled the abortion conversation. We saw mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders and uh, Buttigieg really make some comments that were just, unfortunate man and 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 one in particular where where we kind of use the bible to justify late term abortion 
keep an eye on that people and keep speaking out on that. And maybe somebody will hear it and, and they, they'll change their tune. But that was unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunate. A- abs- absolutely. All right. Well, that's all we have uh, this week. Uh, there is a presidential debate uh, this week. So stay tuned uh, for that. It'll be interesting to see how that goes down. All the major candidates uh, on the Democratic side will be on the stage for the first time. And uh, the race is going to heat up. And uh, as we mentioned last week, we'll start to see uh, whether Congress is going to be able to get anything done uh, in in this new session uh, over over the coming days and weeks. All right, folks, as always, thank you for being with us. You can leave us a review on iTunes to just keep the conversation going. Reach out to us on Twitter. Share the podcast with your with your friends. Uh, hope y'all have all uh had a good transition from the summer back into kind of the full uh, work swing and, and kind of, uh, you know, kids back to school and all of that. And uh, again, thanks for listening. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Have a blessed week. Y'all take care. This is the groove. Tell me, I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a face. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.